Welcome to the Wonder Years podcast, where we discuss principles and practices of nurturing a quiet growing time for children in the early years. In the midst of life's duties and delights, we can cultivate a richly humane life of truth, goodness, and beauty that feeds even the littlest of souls. I am your host, Amanda Foss, and together with my co-host, Brooke Johnson, we invite you to join us as we talk about how to craft homes that lead our children from wonder to worship to wisdom to work for the glory of God and the good of mankind. Let us make the education of the youths our own education and go further up and further in together. Habit is to life what rails are to transport cars. It follows that lines of habit must be laid down towards given ends and after careful survey or the joltings and delays of life become insupportable. More habit is inevitable. If we fail to ease life by laying down habits of right thinking and right acting, habits of wrong thinking and wrong acting fix themselves of their own accord. Habit is like fire, a bad master but an indispensable servant, and probably one reason for the nervous scrupulosity, hesitation, indecision of our day is that life was not duly eased for us in the first place by those whose business it was to lay down lines of habit upon which our behavior might run easily. Charlotte Mason, Towards a Philosophy of Education. God bless you and good day. Welcome to the Wonder Years podcast. I am Amanda. I'm here with my good friend, Brooke, and we are so excited today to share an interview that we are going to be doing with uh, a dear friend, Brandy Venzel, my teacher, I should say. Uh, I would like to thank a friend too yes. from getting to do some things with you last summer. Definitely a friend. <laughs> uh, well, you know, let me just share with everyone how I met you. So going back a couple years ago, I was a hungry homeschool mom, just eager to learn and grow in ideas. And I had like no money. So, so you <laughs> offered a scholarship for your boot camp, and you graciously granted it to me. And so that was the first time I was ever in, exposed to your teaching style. But I feel like I really got to know you in your Charlotte Mason think tank, which mm-hmm. was how many months did that last? I, 15 months? It was a while. It, it was, was a good long time. It was long. Was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As, as you know, I was more of a stalker than a participant by the end because <laughs> well, that was when I had baby. my baby. <laughs> you I did. Yes. <laughs> I was there in spirit and I read everything, but yes, I I was really involved on the front end and just, you know, observing the notes on the back end. But I was so thankful for that class because you really were the first one to make Charlotte Mason understandable to me. I think it really is your gift to take this Victorian woman who was incredibly gifted, incredibly wise, and yet can maybe feel too difficult to connect to for the average modern mom. Hmm. And you were just so great at connecting her ideas to real life, to showing us how to apply it. And really just, I think, did it in a much shorter amount of time than if I had just been alone with the books. Um, You were the first one that ever had me do a narration, which, you know, I would have said was easy until I had to do it. And so I'm so thankful, so thankful for you and that you would come on and share with us today. We're going to be talking about habits, which as anyone who has been in the Charlotte Mason education world for two seconds knows habits are a big deal for us Mason homeschoolers. Uh, And so I would just love to hear from you just to start off. How has Charlotte Mason's teaching on habits shaped your mothering? You know, I have to say, I love that you included this first quote because I feel like it was in reading that, that habits really were driven home for me. 
just that idea that if we don't lay down good habits, then bad ones are going to form. Like basically there was no way out. (laughs) And I felt like that quote is really what made me take responsibility for my children in a way that I hadn't before. Because I think I thought that it was a choice to have habits or not have habits. I just had never, I had never considered that when we slide into, how should I put it? Just basically like the path away of least resistance, that usually those things are not good things. Usually that's us having a habit of giving into our flesh and giving into our passions and just being kind of driven by our appetites. And so I really had to sit and think about, you know, what, what, not just what kind of mother do I want to be, but what kind of family do I really want to have? Do I want to take the risk that we all fall in? What, how does she put it? Habits of wrong thinking and wrong acting fix themselves of their own accord. Like, is that a risk I want to take, you know? And so that was what really drove me to even try to understand what she meant by habits. Cause I really didn't know what she mean meant the first time I read it. Um, but it was just that conviction of, gosh, you know, someone should take responsibility for these kids. <laughs> Maybe it should be me. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's so good. So how, um, how old were your children when you first read Mason and maybe even read that quote? Well, the first time I read anything by Charlotte Mason, my oldest was four. Okay. So I'm in my mid forties when for my 27th birthday, my husband bought me the six volume set, those pink copies that all of the old lady homeschoolers have. (laughs) And so I just started, I didn't know, you know, what order to read anything. And so I just started with volume one and she has tons of stuff on habits, but it was like none of it connected in my brain. (laughs) And so I read all of home education that summer. And what I got out of it was that we should go outside more. Mm-hmm. Really? I just, that was what I connected with. So we went outside and I read it again and it got a little better the second time, <laughs> but it wasn't really until I read volume six that I felt like it really started coming together for me. And I think it's because volume six is just, I think she's a little bit better at presenting her ideas. She's older. She's more mature. She's trying to talk to an audience outside of her own little network of people that already knew her inside lingo and all that kind of stuff. So reading that quote would have been when I was reading volume six, which would have been a number of years later. So I'm thinking my youngest was probably like, or I'm sorry, my oldest was probably around second grade at that time. So it'd probably been about, I don't know, three years or something like that. That was a big motivation for us with starting this podcast because our our experience, and I think for many people, is that they find out about classical education and Charlotte Mason and all these wonderful things right about the time their oldest is school age. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but wait, there's so much about in the classical tradition that pertains to these early years. Yes. And yet, understandably, when uh, older moms are talking, they're going to think more in terms of the season they're in, which is generally school age children for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so just... Uh, that need to really hone in on all the richness of what she has to say, even before they're in lessons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and there's so much, well, especially with the habits, there's so much groundwork that we can do before we have to start thinking about, you know, getting through a curriculum. Mm-hmm. And so having those early years, I mean, I even, I see a big difference between my oldest child and my younger three. There was an almost three year age gap between my oldest and my second. And so 
you know, he was four when I was reading this, but my second child was only one. And so she benefited her whole life from that um, in a way that I do feel like with my oldest, there was some unteaching I had to do. We had already slid into some bad habits. And I mean, it wasn't like I was this totally slack, slacker of a mom, (laughs) but it was just, you know, she, Charlotte Mason tells you things like, oh, an attitude can be a habit. Um, or your response to things can be have. And so it's really, I think it gets into what classical education talks about learning to rightly relate to things. I really, if I had any notion of habits at all, was thinking more about like, this is how we do our chores, right? This is how we brush our teeth, you know, those kinds of things. So I was building those kinds of habits. Um, but I didn't feel like I had the authority over things like attitudes. And so there was definitely some untraining we had to do, especially with our oldest. Oh, yeah, that's that is such a big thing. You know, I think I definitely can resonate with that in terms of my understanding was very much like, oh, it's like chores. Mm -hmm. And then realizing as I'm reading Mason, like she's definitely talking about more than just housework, though housework is, of course, important. Um, Like you said, really the power of the mother to set a tone in the home and to set our children on even paths of with their emotions um but i I like how early on you use the word responsibility right because i think that is the part that is it's it's weighty but it's also hopeful that we can take responsibility for this Mm -hmm. and we don't have to be tossed to and fro with the wind of our child's emotions and an outburst they're having or whatever it might be but we can take responsibility in that situation and be like of course they're struggling they're a little child little children struggle they don't know how to cope with how they feel when they're disappointed like you said their passions and yet my job as a mother is hopefully to be better in control of my emotions enough Mm -hmm. where I can then come alongside them and um, obviously the hard, hardest part of that is often we do that incredibly imperfectly. And so, like you said, I think just as much as, uh, we're having to do unlearning with our older children. Um, I know I've had to do unlearning just with my own, my own sinfulness. Oh, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Well, that goes really well into our next question, which is, can you then define for us what qualifies as the discipline of habit? And I love just what Amanda said, how you mentioned, um, that you had to do maybe even some unlearning with your oldest, because I think a lot of moms will probably find themselves there of, you know, coming to Mason in what feels like to them a later period, like, oh, if I had had this as a baby shower gift, maybe that would have been really helpful, but we're reading it. But now we have the task of maybe starting formal lessons and it just feels very overwhelming. But Mason is talking about a whole way of life. And we, I would just love to hear your thoughts of how do you, how do you um, define the discipline of habit? Well, I feel like first we should start with how Charlotte Mason defined it. Um, and so she she says we have these three instruments that we use to educate our children. So she says the atmosphere of the environment, the discipline of habit, and the presentation of living ideas. And I do think it's good for us to remember that all three of those tools work together. And she says that very specifically in a couple of places in her work, just because I do think it's very easy for us to look at her list of instruments and choose our favorite, like whatever we're good at. So I really latched on to the presentation of living ideas because I love to read and I love to philosophize. Mm. And that was the, that was the easy one for me, <laughs> mm. but the habit thing was not so easy, but I've met other women where it's like, they're really type A, they're really on it and they're very good at structuring a child's life and all of that. Um, 
but you know, there's other as that one of the other instruments is where their weakness is. And so I do think it's good for us to remember that, you know, habit is one third, I would say, you know, it's one third of what we're really doing. It's not, it's not the whole, we don't want to mistake it for the whole, but anyway, she goes on and she says the discipline of habit really is the mother as far as in the context of education, it's the mother thoughtfully selecting habits and then deliberately training her children in them. I think that gets us back to the contrast that was in that first quote that you shared, Brooke, where it's just, you fall into these negative habits if you're not careful. If you're going to have good ones, then you have to be proactive. It's going to be something that you thought about and something that you deliberately did. Because unfortunately, we live in a fallen world. So the good things don't happen by accident. (laughs) <laughs> I wish they did. It would be really nice if they did. Um, so the habits are disciplined to the child, but I uh, I think especially in the younger years, they're disciplined to the to the mother um, first and foremost. I mean, she does talk about Charlotte Mason does talk about how in the older years we want to give them the self discipline of habit. So at some point we should be handing that off. But I know you guys are focused on ages seven and under, and I think the discipline part of habit. I mean, there is a sense in which children are always disciplined by the habit that we've instilled. But when I think of the real discipline of habit, I just think of how how difficult it can be for mom because we're so tired. Lots of times we're sleep deprived. We've had babies and we're nursing and we're, you know, we're underslept and maybe undernourished and all of these things. And it's like, that's where the discipline part comes in. The doing it anyway and the persevering Basically, what does scripture say? Do not grow weary in doing good. I feel like that's a theme verse for habit training in the little years. Um, because it's, it is, it's on us. You know, usually dad is at work all day and the kids are awake when he's gone for the most part. <laughs> so it really is on us. Um, and if we have, you know, habits of laziness or habits of not having self-control, then it's going to be really hard for us to form good habits in our children. So I'm not saying that there's not habits that we form in little kids, but I do think, I don't know. I think Amanda, you kind of implied this, like the habits training kind of starts with us training, training ourselves Mm. (laughs) and repenting from the places. Yeah. I think a lot of young moms will make the mistake. Like they'll say things like, I'm just really frustrated because my four-year-old is not unloading the dishwasher by themselves. And you're like, okay, but like, where are you? Like, are you in the other room? Are you present in the kitchen? How long did you spend actually teaching them how to do it? Did like, was it two days and then you're gone? Or, you know, like, instead of recognizing that there's a process there, and especially when they're really little, you really do have to be Mm. present and you have to be a part of it. And like you said, Mm. as much as it is the habit of a child waking up first thing, you know, after their snuggles and going and doing the dishwasher, it's also you walking into the kitchen with them so that they can go do the dishwasher after Mm -hmm. their snuggles. but, you yeah. know, sometimes we don't want to get, you know, it really is, like you said, can expose a lot of our own laziness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that even makes it sounds uncharitable because, you know, it's not just laziness. Sometimes we are genuinely exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so it's true. It, is, it takes fortitude. Very real fortitude. Yeah. It really does. It. Yeah. It's, those were tough years. I, I mean, I always have so much sympathy for moms with a whole bunch of little kids because I just feel like my memories of that stage are like, they're all gray. <laughs> And I don't mean because I was depressed. I just was so tired. And so 
I mean, sometimes I look back and I'm like, I hope it went fine. It seems okay now. <laughs> but it just, yeah. it really is like those early years are just very exhausting. And I, it, a lot of it has to do with very few of them can do anything for themselves. Right. And so it's just, there's so many things that are on you that when your youngest child is four or five, suddenly are not, you know, suddenly everybody can um, buckle themselves into the car seat, right? And everybody can mm. just do things for themselves that you've been having to do. And it's like, all of a sudden you have so much more bandwidth and it's like your brain wakes up. Mm. But those early years are really tough. Unfortunately, they're also really important. And so it'd be really awesome if we could just skate until the youngest kid was six or something. Mm. Um, but, you know, those those things that were forming in those early years really do come to play when the children are older. And so it's, none of us are going to have perfect habits, but I often think whatever groundwork we're able to do in those early years, it's like money in the bank for later hmm. because later has its own challenges. But if you're still fighting the battle you should have fought when the child was three or four, it makes later harder, hmm. I think. And I mean, that's why it's difficult for people who come to Charlotte Mason and classical education later right. is lots of times um, it feels very overwhelming because there's a certain amount of work that has to be done, whether the child is 10 or the child is three. And so it can be overwhelming. I think in a different way, you might have more independent children, but then there's more work to do. So it it really is, yeah. I got to say, it really is easier. Charlotte Mason has a place, and I don't remember, I think it's in home education, but I could be wrong, where she talks about keeping watch at the letting out of waters. Mm. And it's basically mm. this idea of, th at that point, it's a very small problem. Right. And so being consistent and being aware and being proactive, I mean, those are all very energy draining in their own way. But it's such a small thing versus when that seed has been allowed to be planted and then it's been watered and it's grown up and you're trying to dig it out by the roots and it's got huge roots. That is just way harder work mm. um, and way more serious work because at right. some point it can even have become more of like a character issue for the right. child. So I do think, you know, it in many ways in those younger years, you're paying your dues, mm. right? Like, you will reap benefits from having done the hard work in the early years. Not that everything will be perfect when they're older, but just there's a certain amount of peace that comes from having done the work in the time that was best for it to be done. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a funny example, but my kids, they, um, all of them went through a phase when they were like at the baby food age where they would like do raspberries and blow it all over me. Mm -hmm. And it literally took till the fifth child for me to realize, oh, if I just tell him no, the first time he does it, he'll stop. You know, it took maybe two or three times of me being very firm and being like, no, and putting my finger on his mouth. I, I, I didn't like nothing, you know, aggressive, but just being serious with him and giving him the look that Charlotte Mason says <laughs> children all know from their mother. Um, and then at 10, oh, he, I mean, it was just a no big deal. Like he immediately took to it and responded to me and smiled at me and we moved on with our day. And I would just sat there and I went to my husband and I'm like, I've been getting food raspberried all over me for all these children <laughs> because of the whole process of letting out of waters. I did not realize like, oh, even at this age, I can be training mm. him not right. to do that. Mm. Like at 10 months old, you know, yeah. and it's a little thing, but even that is that first step of, 
he's not even walking yet. And yet that was the first step of this is actually obedience. He needs to learn that when mommy says no, not to do it. And that he's going to have the joy and delight of mom smiling at him and affirming him when he does do that. Yeah. And it's not aggressive. It's not adversarial. It's just that training. Yeah. I think that's a, actually a great example because I think we often don't realize how many little annoyances pile up to us just being generally annoyed. <laughs> it's, yes. But it's like we don't realize we do actually have some control over these things. And we're, you know, we're allowing whether we realize or not, we're allowing it. Um, that was very helpful hearing you answer that. And so um, I have another question. If you can help us think about what is the basic process of habit training? And so we know that it's important. We know that there's a way to do it that is going to really set our children up to um, be able to pursue it. Because one of the things, I don't know if this was your experience, but um I realized very early on that I had just very high expectations for my children and almost along the lines of what Amanda, you had mentioned, where I thought, oh, I can show them a few times, I can tell them, I can set the expectation, and then that's it. And I kind of missed the part of really having to train them several times over and <laughs> over again. And so one of my frustrations was I just was not really considering the child, nor did I do the work of training fully. And so I was getting frustrated, but then it was really reading through um, philosophy of education that I was like, I'm, I'm not thinking about this the mm. right way. So if you can just help me <laughs> even like lay out a basic process of what habit training looks like. So Charlotte Mason basically outlines a process in home education. There's a subsection in home education called Habit is Ten Natures. And then there she gives, I I say that it's eight steps, but I actually think I added one <laughs> to myself. But um, so she talks about first, oh my gosh, my dog, you guys, I'm so sorry. Um, He talks about, she talks about first committing ourselves to the time and energy required for the task. And I actually do think this is more important than sometimes we give ourselves credit for because we'll be, I don't know, a week away from a vacation, say. And then we're like, this has reached the breaking point. We're going to overhaul this right now. But it's, we can't be consistent, right? We're going to be gone and everybody's going to lose all of their habits and we're going to come back and no one's going to even remember what we were about. And so I do really think that when she's telling us to think about the timing of all of it, I think that does matter. Starting a, a brand new habit right before Christmas, right before Thanksgiving, right before, I mean, if they're directly related to the holidays, that's one thing. Um, but if they're something that's going to be really derailed by how off schedule everything is anyway because of those circumstances that it's probably a good idea to say I'm going to wait till after the new year right I'm not going to do this you know next week or something um the step I think I might have added was praying for strength and perseverance I don't remember if she actually put that in there but I always feel like it's good to start these things with prayer um and I mean prayer for us <laughs> because we're about to do something that sounds really great until week three when we're about ready to like we feel like we should be done um and so it's the perseverance part I think where we often get worn out 
Um, so then she talks about talking with the child and forming a mother-child team. We're, we're determined to acquire the good habit together. And I will say, I don't worry about that so much if we're talking about a two-year-old or maybe even a three-year-old, depending on how mature the three-year-old is. But definitely by the time a child is six or seven, you know, we could sit down together and we could talk about this habit and why we're going to, um, why we're going to be forming it. And she talks about trying to connect that with an idea. So when they're really tiny, I think we can feed them the idea. Oh, we're going to clean up the playroom every day at this time because it's good for us to be orderly or we want to make it more beautiful or whatever the idea is that's really driving you for that. Um, sharing the idea with them, I think, is super simple. But when they're older, I mean, we can even ask them, why do you think I like why I'm saying this is a good idea? Why do you think I'm saying that? And just see what ideas they come up with, you know, trying to like make them do some of the thinking work behind it, I think is super helpful. And then she talks about not allowing the old bad habit. So this can be really elaborate if we're just talking about keeping watch of the letting out of waters. I don't think that what I'm saying needs to be um, done for every single habit. But when we're talking about, gosh, my life feels really chaotic because we have fallen into a number of bad habits. Or I had a situation with um, a couple of my children where it was like they had their own bad habit that derailed a lot of our school days because it was just this type of fight would break out at almost the same time every morning. Um, and of course it was, you know, when I had left to do something important. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, so it was that kind of thing where I needed to not allow this old bad habit, which meant with really little kids, I had to sit in the room and not do all the things I wanted to be doing in order to be present and make sure that I wasn't allowing that old bad habit. And so then at the same time, we're not allowing the old bad habit. We're expecting the new bad, ha the new good habit. So whatever that is, whatever this replacement is that we're trying to do. Um, and then after that, she talks about when there are, um, when, when a child forgets. So if you think about maybe there's, maybe the child had a habit of just always throwing uh, his jacket on the floor and we're trying to teach him to hang it up on the hook that we gave for him. And so he needs to be reminded because he ran into the house and he threw his jacket on the floor. She talks about reminding the child in a way that keeps the mother and child on the same team, um, but also in a way that requires the child to do the thinking so that remembering the habit is internalized as part of the habit, if that makes sense. And it took me a long time for real to realize that she was driving home the child's own engagement with the habit like it wasn't just external it was internal so instead of reminding in the sense of hey you just dropped your jacket on the floor would you please put it up she would say something like oh I said I would remind you and let the child just kind of struggle while he's trying to remember what in the world mother's talking about <laughs> and so then when he finally remembers the remembering to do the habit became part of the habit in that moment and I do think that's where we sometimes lose our children because we're doing all, too much of the work for them when it comes to building the habit. So we might not be, in the jacket example, the one that's picking up the jacket and hanging it up, <clears throat> but we're definitely the one that's doing all of the mental work. We're doing the remembering. We're doing the reminding. And so by just changing it a tiny bit where we 
ask a question instead of telling them and get them to remember what they're supposed to be doing, I think we're starting to internalize that habit a little bit more. So then she goes on to challenging the child to excel. That can be a difficult one, but it could be something like maybe his sister accidentally left her jacket in the car. So now he hangs hers up too. You know, there can be like little ways to stretch the habit to where now he's he's doing something for someone else, not just for himself. And then in the end, she has permit no reversion and guard the habit. And in many ways, those two steps go together. But I think that they're also separate because I think the reversion comes from inside the child and the guarding needs to be against the external forces. So one example I can think of with the jacket situation would be with the reversion would just be that Johnny's really in a hurry today and he just really doesn't think he has time to stop and hang up his jacket. And so it's just an internal temptation where mom just needs to be, um, mom needs to realize that, that the easiest path is to not allow him to do that <laughs> in that in that moment. But when I think of guarding the habit, I think of a babysitter or maybe grandma came over and started doing everything for him. And so he's getting out of the habit because someone's doing it for him. And so I have to guard the habit by saying, no, he's really working on this right now. So I need you to let him do this thing. I need you like telling if there's a an aunt or an uncle or a grandma or someone who's watching him, I need to tell them, please make sure that he's the one that hangs up his jacket because that's the exact habit we're working on, if that makes sense. So that is her process that she goes through. And I love that she ends with this idea of not permitting reversion and guarding the habit because it does extend it out in time. So maybe it took us, you know, the whole stereotypical 30 days to get into a general good habit of hanging up our jacket or whatever the thing is. But it's going to take a lot longer where it has to be guarded before it really is solidified. And so, you know, we can start forming other habits at that point, but we still have to be on our guard not to lose the old ones. I used to carry around lists of things that I had worked on in the past because I'd forget. <laughs> I'd forget to guard them. Just, you know, your mind moves on. <laughs> other things. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm just even thinking, listening to you, something that has just been really on my mind recently is how rushing and being in a hurry is often the enemy of what I'm trying to accomplish with my children. Oh, so true. Because what you're describing really requires a, a level of a degree of margin to be able to stop when we see our child rush past us and you know leave the jacket on the floor instead of thinking, oh, he left his jacket on the floor again, you know, but and pausing and have taking the time to have a conversation. You know, I think so often we moms can develop a bad habit of talking at our children and telling them over and over and over again, mm -hmm. instead of, like you said, asking those questions. And so that's just such a good reminder for all of us, because it's without doing these things, we're going to be caught in a cycle of frustration. And then that's not good for our relationship to the child, because then they're constantly feeling our sense of frustration. And yet, if we don't have a path forward and a path out of these issues, it's going to, like you said, mount up more and more over time. So you've obviously just given us the, the breakdown of how we're going to go about this. So now could you walk us through just like by age for each age, like what should we be focusing on in terms of my, maybe like a top two or three habits per age? So like starting like with the zero to two year olds, what what should be at the forefront of a mother's mind with her zero to two year old? 
I would say number one is obedience. And I mean, I say that because Charlotte Mason said that she that's one of the few habits where she really gives you an age. And she talks about starting to form that habit of obedience in the first year of life. But also just because if we don't have a habit of obedience, then everything else really starts to fall apart. I mean, if we're if our habit is to defy mother, then none of these other steps are going to work because I'm just going to be constantly dealing with that child's resistance. So we really do have to build on a foundation where we've properly formed this relationship between mother and child, where the mom is the one in authority and the child is generally in a position or in a disposition to be teachable. Right. And if we don't have that, then a lot of other things, like a lot of our other habits aren't going to matter really. So I would say zero to two. If you get that down in zero to two, you're doing great. <laughs> if, and, but I mean, this doesn't mean perfection, right? This just means general. It doesn't mean that you've completely failed if, you know, little Susie was up all night and then she's just been fractious all day. Like you're not a big failure if that happens, but just the general is the general relationship that I'm in charge and Susie isn't, <laughs> right? Like that's where we don't want it to go sideways. So that's Charlotte Mason's first habit, mm. the habit on which all else rests. When it comes to the other ages, I actually think that a lot of it is not, how do I put this? I don't know that it's once and done. I think a lot of it are things that grow with the child. Mm. So I was thinking through mm. all the places in her book books and Charlotte Mason's books where she gives us different lists of habits. So, and the two primary places that come to mind, um, first in home education, she has so many things about habit. Um, and she talks about, you know, that basically the habits of the nursery. So things like cleanliness and modesty and purity and obedience and a sense of humor and orderliness and all sorts of things. But I kind of feel like, okay, that's true at two and it's also true at seven and it's going to look different between those two ages because what the child is capable of at two is so different from what the child is capable of at seven. I mean, there's such a huge difference between a two-year-old and a seven-year-old. And so I often think about there's these habits that we're starting, but it's the same thing the next year, but we're growing it. And so what's a good example? I'm thinking like, for example, okay. So my oldest child, when he was one, his favorite thing to do was to come in and take every book off of the bookshelf and just trash the library. Basically that was his favorite thing in the whole world. <laughs> and I did not keep watch at the letting out of waters. <laughs> so it was every single day usually three or four times a day, I found myself putting all of these picture books back on his shelf because he had just torn them all up. Well, you know, when, when you're that age, that shelf is the one that he could reach. So if there was something higher up that needed to be put in order, he couldn't do that. He couldn't even reach it, but at six, he could. So that's the kind of thing where I, th I think it grows because they become more responsible for themselves and their environment as things go on, you know, we think about modesty in terms of, you know, usually teenage girls that are dressing inappropriately, but she puts this in the list for 
um, for the nursery. So training them in habits of decency and simplicity. Because, you know, if you think about immodesty, it's not just what you're wearing. It's the desire, the underlying desire to draw attention to yourself, mm -hmm. right? Um, and mm -hmm. she's working, Charlotte Mason is encouraging mothers to be working on that at the very youngest of ages. And so, again, it's that sense that it grows. You know, if we don't, if we wait mm -hmm. and we don't talk about modesty at all in our homes until somebody hits puberty, we've waited far too long because the, the principles okay. that you're going to draw on for that talk when they're hitting puberty and becoming young women and young men were hopefully inculcated when they were three, four, five years old. Right. And so they have some general sense of that. And now it's just a little different because you're getting your adult body, but they still, you know, so, so at three or four, it's, you know, quit putting your dress up over your head, <laughs> right? Quit show, quit flashing everybody at church with your underwear. <laughs> it's, you know, it's those little things um, that are totally endearing, but also are the beginnings of them learning how to be, you know, modest and appropriate and all those things. So I, I don't, I hope I'm not disappointing you by not having like a specific you know, here's two for this age and here's two for this age. Um, but I really do think that so many of them actually it's that I really, I think a lot of it's going to grow out of us understanding and catching a vision for what a mature yeah. person looks like. And so if we read, mm. for example, Charlotte Mason or any other great philosopher looking for what are the characteristics of a good man and a good woman? What does virtue look like? Then we can think about, well, that looks like this at two and looks like this at four and looks like that, you know what I'm saying? And we can start to track how it, how it grows. Mm. Um, and I think we're going to, I think we're going to get farther than if we try to, you know, check a box here and there or something. Yeah. Even as you're saying that, I'm shocked I forgot to mention in the beginning that you and I did a class yes. called Consider the Cause last year, and it was based off of Aristotle's Four Causes, um, and you had taken that in our Charlotte Mason think tank and applied it to how to discern which educational philosophy is best, but one of those principles, right, is know the final cause or begin with the end in mind right. and so just as you're talking I'm thinking how that so applies to this issue of having that vision of a whole person of a mature person and you know I think that I, I'm thankful that you did clarify that in terms of it's so tempting to want to like check a box and then move on mm -hmm. and be done and I think you know and be like okay so I'm gonna get this done when they're two and then at three we'll do this and at four we'll do this instead of like you said this layering and just slowly nurturing them as a whole person I even think of this connecting back to Charlotte Mason's principle of children are born persons what you're really describing is keeping that in mind that it's not like we have to wait to evaluate a certain aspect of their habits until they're older in terms of their physical spiritual mm -hmm. mental whatever it might be, what all of the, there's so many different types of habits and yet they are all in maybe a baby seed form with a child, with a young child. And yet they are there. Um, and we are from mm -hmm. those earliest days having the opportunity to cultivate that. Something you said yeah. made me think that people are going to want to know this. So I've got to ask. <laughs> so let's say you have a seven-year-old who you didn't train in obedience at two. 
what like how would you counsel a mother in that situation to handle that because that's a tricky thing when i think a lot of us can hear you talking or if we think about habits and then you can just get that sinking feeling as a mom of like oh like i i just really wish i had done better sooner so now what do i do <laughs> i mean honestly i would start with repenting formally to the child in the sense of God gives one command to children and that is that they obey their children. And he tells me that that is a blessing to them. And if I was allowing the child in disobedience for a long time, then that's on me, right? I mean, this, it's not, we're not talking about a rebellious 17 year old. This you're still really small children. <laughs> and so yeah. I really think, I think repenting to our children when we've made mistakes can go can carry us really far. I mean, I really, I really am a firm believer in not pretending that everything was fine when it wasn't. Um, and so I think coming to the child and saying, I mean, showing them, can you read this to me? This is God's command, you know, and having the child read, oh, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is good. And then explaining, I've allowed you to have this disobedient relationship to me. Um, and I'm sorry. And so we're, go we're going to change that. And, but this is why, and having them understand, I think, um, that this is part of mom's repentance and dad's repentance. I just think that's a huge foundation. So then we can go through, you know, what does it really look like? Because that's a big thing. So it's really easy to go through these eight steps that I presented, right, of the habit training when it's one thing, hanging up your jacket or how you talk to your sister or whatever, but obedience is huge. It's every day, all day long, really. And so what do we do? I really think the key with that is, is do overs where we just have, so the new habit is when we catch disobedience. I did this with one, actually both of my sons, when it came to, um, when they got older, they would speak disrespectfully. Most children experiment with that at some point, right? But it was just, it would just, Kids, honestly, they get tired of do-overs because they would rather be doing something else than saying it correctly for the fifth time. <laughs> and I think it works the same way with a seven-year-old that has been disobedient. Okay, remember I said we're going to work on disobedience, so this is not obeying. What should you be doing? Um, and just letting them think about what they should be doing. <laughs> um, but just not making a big deal out of it either. Because we don't want to end up in an adversarial relationship with the child. We want it to be that we're on the same team. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. For this is good. And it will go well with you. And no, like I am for you. I want things to go well with you. And I've realized that I have not been being for you by allowing this behavior. I, kids may not like that. But I think they do feel their parents love, right? We are told in scripture that it is the father disciplines those he loves. And so to the extent that I've been ignoring right. something is the extent to which I've been unloving toward my child, which is hard words, but it's the beginning of change for all of us. And so I would just, I mean, not to repeat myself over and over again, but I would start with a real apology and then building a plan together. Um, including the child in the plan as much as possible. Because mm. definitely at age seven, they're old enough to have a real conversation about this. I mean, if you're dealing with a three or four-year-old, you probably don't need to have a big chat. But the older they are, um, I think the easier to, it, it's easier to get them on board if you treat them as a person 
by having a real conversation and just being honest. Um, I mean, hopefully they already figured out mom and dad weren't perfect. <laughs> and so it shouldn't be a big shock to them that mom and dad made a mistake. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Man, that is, I'm like trying not mm -hmm. to cry, which is pretty normal for me. But um, we just, my husband and I just sat my oldest down, goodness, last week um, and did that very thing where we, it wasn't so much a disobedience issue, but it was a decision that we made that we now, right, we made when he was five, let's say. But now at seven, we're seeing, wow, he really wasn't ready. But he's our first kid and we're new at this. We're both first generation Christians and we're doing our best, but realizing now, okay, we need to just pause on this. Um, but just like you said, like he's old enough to really understand now. And so we had to sit him down and it was really painful. Like, but you know, there's what you said, just like grace to cover and, um, you know, we said this, the thing, we apologized as best we could saying, we just made a bad decision. We chose this a little too soon, but you know, here's what we're going to do. And, you know, it was fine after that conversation and our relationship is restored, but it's just what you said, having to humble yourself and receive that lesson in humility and say, you know, we just, we chose too soon or too, or wrongly, or, you know, just what you said, we, um, and that's really hard for a mom and then a dad to really do. But at the same time, right. Um, I can think I'm 32 and I can think of all the bad habits <laughs> that I still have and all the earned learning that I'm having to do. Um, and like you said at the beginning, those are things that really help motivate me to say, man, I want to give him the best chance um, to have a rightly ordered life, rightly ordered loves and affections, because it is much harder now um, at my age trying to do that. Um, because I was not um, a Christian until I was in college my freshman year is when I became a Christian. And so, um, so yeah, so I just already felt like I was very, you know, always like steps behind in learning. Um, and so that, yeah, that very, that quote we opened with was very similar to what you were saying, Brandy, that me reading that is what the language, Charlotte Mason gave me the language to what I knew in my heart, but I didn't have the language for. And when I read that, I was like, this is the way walk in it. Um, but yeah, but it's really hard. So thank you for sharing that example, because that's going to encourage. You know, I really think, um, that you know, a habit that maybe Charlotte Mason never mentions, I can't think of her mentioning it, is this habit of repenting and of apologizing and reconciling and all of that. I think if I could think, if I could point out one thing that I think is missing, it would be this. But in, I mean, every home is going to struggle at times. Um, and I feel like we're not even really preparing our kids for real life where real people make real mistakes if we don't include this habit of um, repenting and reconciling. It just, um, you know, we can think, oh, it's, you know, it's embarrassing or it undermines my authority with my child or I've heard different, you know, takes on this. But I think ultimately it's like this is the healthy way to respond to the fact that none of us are perfect. <laughs> we we have to admit that none of us are perfect. So then how are we going to deal with it? That itself is a habit. 
how what is going to be our habit for dealing with the fact that we are sinful people and also that we're just not always um i mean it doesn't even have to be a sin right it can just be that we make mistakes we're not perfect we didn't think about it correctly or we didn't have all the information at the time so yeah this just makes me think of, i think it's dr george grant right who has the quote that education is repentance uh, and, you know, so much of this is we're really learning for ourselves in many ways, all the things that our own weaknesses are being exposed. And yet I, I think you're so right that there's such an opportunity there with our children to show them humility. And and I've always been blown away by the times when I have gone to particularly my older two children, because they're the only ones old enough, but the six and the eight year old just the humility they have. They're, not that there's never any resistance having to tell them, hey, look, I, I've been wrong about how I'm approaching this and we're going to have to change some things or what, or something like that. But at the end of the day, especially as my husband and I share our heart with them and explain to them, like you were saying, this is because we love you. This is what is we really believe is best for you. And we, we can't do anything other than what we believe is best. We might find out later that we got some things wrong. In fact, I'm sure we will find out later that we got some things wrong. Yes. Right. And yet I'm just before the Lord today. This is what we want to do to try to shepherd you and lead you closer to Christ right. and honor him and teach you how to, you know, to honor the Lord. And and they, they generally I think kids are tender hearted, you know, especially if they see that we are mm -hmm. coming from that place of contrition and that we're not standing over them in pride, mm -hmm. but saying, I'm a sinner like you. And here I am uh, trying to lead you well and teach you well. And here I tripped and here I messed up. But Let's keep working on this together and yeah, I'm just grateful for that. Yeah. I think we want them to feel our love in all of this. Um, and I think that's where the repenting part can really come in handy of them recognizing that we are trying our best to love them the way God commands us to. And we're not always going to get it right, which is why we end up having to apologize and why they all have to apologize to each other. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if they have siblings, they're having to do that anyway. Um, I had one child one time and I can't even remember what the decision was that my husband and I had made, but was just still resistant. And I kind of got cornered in the kitchen <laughs> where it was like this child decided they were going to push me and see if they could get me to change my mind kind of thing. And I remember <laughs> what eventually resulted in that child backing down was just me saying, you know, at the end of the day, I'm the one that has to stand before the Lord and, and be held to account for how I did my job as your mother. And I understand that you don't like my decision. And I wish that I could agree with you because I know you'd be happier and our whole house would be more peaceful. <laughs> but I can't in good conscience say yes to this. And so you have to let me obey God. You have to let me do that. And it's fine if when you grow up, you make a different decision for your own children, right? I mean, that God only gave me these children. These are the only ones that I'm in authority over. And so I just, I have to do what I, you know, what in good conscience God has called me to. So, and it, it really was interesting though, to see the child soften up in that moment. This really ties perfectly into the last question that I wanted to ask you because um, one of the anchors for my the way I think about the early years um, was a phrase you used in Think Tank, um, which was that exposure breeds taste. Uh, that just had a very profound 
impact on me realizing that the the atmosphere of our home, the attitudes, um, and then the things we do, these habits, the habits of our lives, the patterns that we're doing in our days, all these things are ways of exposure to breed the taste of our child. Um, you know, with little kids, we have this amazing opportunity to form their unformed taste, whereas with an older child, we're maybe sometimes having to reform, deform taste. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk about the role of attitudes in all this, and you're kind of already getting there as you talk about love, because I think we can all imagine a type of environment where it's adversarial and it's negative, and that exposure and habit training is breeding a negative taste, right? There, It's breeding a distaste in them for these things that we're trying to give them but we're so stressed out and we're so anxious in our communication or frantic or whatever it might be that we're really actually cultivating the opposite of what we're hoping for. And so um, what tone should we be thinking of and setting in our habit training and what living ideas can we give, can, could you give us as just wisdom to navigate that and persevere in that work? I think ultimately, you know, we... Actually, I love that you use the word adversarial because I feel like that's a big thing. There's, you know, there's different ways in which grown children seem to repent, uh, resent their parents. Sometimes it seems like it's just mm, part of the breaking away process, right? And it's, you know, so at 20, they're kind of critical of their parents. And then by 25 or 30, they're like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> and I think that's a very normal part of just growing up and separating and becoming your own person, your own family. But then there's the other ones where you see this real, like, I am not going to do this the way my parents did it. My parent, like they're very, they're very condemning of their parents and oftentimes rightfully so. So, and I think it comes down to this adversarial, they felt like they were the enemy. They were enemies with their, with their parents. Um, and I, when I think of tone, I really think of camaraderie. Um, yes, I'm still an authority. I'm not your peer. Hopefully we'll be friends when you are grown. But right now, friendship is not really the exact way that I would define the relationship with you, even though there is a sense in which you are friends with your child, even from the youngest years. But it's not the same as being, you know, a friend with a peer. Um, but just this, we're in it together. We're pursuing good things together. I'm here trying to help you. I'm not here trying to hurt you. And I'm not here trying to criticize and condemn. Um, it's, I mean, ultimately it probably comes from humility, right? Just being realistic about our own selves. Um, and then also po po probably um, not taking our children's flaws personally. That's another thing that I think I observe sometimes when you you meet embittered older children um, is that it seems like the parent's identity was very wrapped up in the behavior of the children. And so the correction really wasn't focused on for this is good. Instead, it was, I'm hurt. Your sin hurts me. Um, and I just like that can be very true sometimes. And probably the more grievous the sin, the more that it hurts. But it can be very destructive to bring that attitude to the table because um, really it introduces a level of arbitrariness where now I'm sort of the God you have to please, right? And that's a huge burden to put on a child um, to make our affection for them 
based upon their performance. Um, so we want to be showing our affection for them through how we're coaching them and their good habits and trying to give them oftentimes more than we received, right? Like I have great parents. I know I've talked with you before, Amanda, about your parent. You have great parents. And yet we're still trying to give our children more than what we got. Like there's always room for improvement. Um, but we want the children to feel our goodwill, I think, in that. Um, I One thing about persevering in this world, I don't, this isn't exactly, I think, what you're looking for, but it is something I've thought about a lot is just this idea that it's generational work. So, you know, Brooke was talking about how she's a first generation Christian, so is her husband. Well, that's that was my parents. My parents were first generation. Um, they weren't raised in Christian homes, though their parents now claim Christ, but they weren't raised that way. And so, you know, I feel like, oh gosh, my parents did a really good job considering that disadvantage. But hopefully we're doing better than either of our parents did. But hopefully our children will do way better than us. So I really do think we can take this perspective of this is generational work. We can even give our children that perspective. It is true. You might do a better job than me. I hope that you do. <laughs> I hope you do a better job than me. My mom would always say that she wants me to stand on her shoulders. And I have mm. definitely already started using that phrase with my eight-year-old because it's so true. Motherhood is so sanctifying and that even as you're trying to do all these things and do them well and indeed stand on your parents' shoulders, you do realize exactly like you're saying. It's actually funny that you you went there. And literally, that was exactly where my mind was at. It was like, this is multi-generational. Like you can't get trapped in the the hopelessness of if we don't fix everything right now in the next 10 years, then it's done. Like, right. no, this is, this is a vision for, well, I'm going to do the best I can by the grace of God, by his mercy, running to him each day, Amen. and then praying yep. for my children that they will continue in the faith, that they will mm -hmm. run after Christ, strive towards him and keep building, keep going up. And, and I think that's so much is maternal love that we truly do want our children to do better than us. We want them to go beyond us. Um, that is, there would be no greater joy than to see our children uh, take these principles and um, these, the knowledge and the life that we've given them and glorify God with it in, in great ways. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> Just love everything you said. <laughs> I was thinking about this, funny enough, in regard to Latin, um, because trying to take on teaching Latin when I didn't even really, I only vaguely knew it was a language <laughs> when I first started homeschooling, you know, and, but, you know, reading in the, in the, in the, reading in the tradition, thinking this is something I want to give my children, starting per to pursue that. And now I would say a number of my children have actually done very well in Latin. But thinking about how much easier it's going to be for them when it comes time for them, because they already know a lot of this. Um, hopefully they won't have forgotten it all by the time, <laughs> by the time they are children. But I mean, they, they understand, you know, what a declension is. I didn't even know what that was. I had to look it up the first time I heard it. But, you know, it's easy for us to see it when it's something really objective, like a language. I teach you you have a better starting place to teach your children. You'll do a way better job than I did because I didn't know what in the world I was doing, right? Like, it's really easy to see that. But we often forget that that really is how everything works in families. Our families can either continue to decline or they can build. I don't think there's a whole lot of middle ground. 
but the building I think actually starts with us kind of being like what your mom said challenging them yes do better <laughs> that's that's great you're not I'm not threatened by the fact that you're going to do better and I think maybe that is when we talk about tone the difference if we find ourselves feeling threatened um by one of the statements that the children make to us then we really need to go have some private time and sort that out with the Lord because um, that is the beginning of that adversarial tone in the home, I think, is when we feel threatened and it gets personal. And you can't really maintain your authority once you start feeling threatened because now you're not even really in charge. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's so true. It's like just gave the reins over to our passions. <laughs> Mm -hmm. oh, man. We did, you know, which is a hard thing, mom, because you're so invested in it that it's so, like mm -hmm. you have given your whole self to this work, and yet to give it freely to Christ and to uh, give it in a way that is not um, taking it personal, like you said, when things don't go exactly the way we want. That that is definitely a a difficult but necessary lesson of motherhood that I know I'm. I'm definitely still working on. I can imagine it and it'll only be more difficult as they get older and more expressive, verbally expressive. <laughs> so everything you shared was so helpful, so encouraging. I think this is going to be really helpful to the ladies listening. Um, I'm just so thankful that you would come on and share these things with us. You know, um, I think as Brooke and I being young moms, as much as we want to be talking about this, this life stage of the early years, um, we know we don't want to do it alone. We want to have the voices of older mothers because you've been through it. You've done it. And, you know, now your children are high school and college age and getting married and all these wonderful things. And um, it's just such a gift to us younger moms to hear from you and to, to get to um, just have you speaking into the season of life that we're in. So I'm just so thankful for you, Brandy. Um, well, thanks for inviting me. I mean, I just love talking to you. You are a delight to talk to. So I really appreciate you guys having me on. Oh, thank you so much. Where can they find you? I mentioned Afterthoughts blog, I think already, but where where can any, anyone go to mm -hmm. see you? Your Instagram's hilarious. So if anyone wants fun political commentary. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't Brandy. like politics, don't look at my Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> not for everyone. <laughs> it's an acquired taste. Um, so at the top of afterthoughtsblog.net, um, there is a link for boot camp there's a little ad for boot camp and that's how people can get on the waiting list for my charlotte mason boot camp that i teach once or twice a year depending on how the year is going i really hope to teach it twice in 2024 but we'll see because i also have a lot of different life things that are changing um but that's my goal for 2024 and then um also i'm the host of the scully sisters podcast and so scullysisters.com is another place to find me yes oh the scully sisters podcast is so much fun i just laugh along with you ladies when you're in my earbuds <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> we're going to conclude with an exhortation from aristotle even though we've actually talked a lot about charlotte mason charlotte mason was summarizing ideas that are in the classical tradition she did not stand alone in her belief that uh, habits and what we do is shaping us towards Lord willing, towards virtue, and that that was the ultimate goal. So I want to read this exhortation from Aristotle in his Nicomachean Ethics, a book that is believed to have been written for his son, Nicomachus. Uh, so with progeny in his mind, Aristotle said this, We must therefore, by some means, secure that the character shall have at the outset a natural affinity for virtue, loving what is noble and hating what is base. 
and it is difficult to obtain a right education and virtue from youth up without being brought up under right laws. For to live temperately and heartily is not pleasant to most men, especially when young. Hence, the nurture and exercises of the young should be regulated by law, since temperance and hardiness will not be painful when they have become habitual. But doubtless it is not enough for people to receive the right nurture and discipline in youth. They must also practice the lessons they have learned and confirm them by habit when they are grown up. Thank you for joining us today as we sought to participate in the great conversation. You can find our show notes for today's episode, including all the quotes and book titles mentioned by heading over to the Wonder Years podcast substack. If you have any questions regarding today's episode, we would love to hear from you at wonderyearspodcast at gmail.com. In addition, we would so appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Finally, you can find both of us on Substack. My Substack is titled A Classical Woman and Brooke's is A Pilgrim's Way. Brooke is also on Instagram at her handle underscore Brooke Johns. Cheers, friends. Until next time.